Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 28 of the Essential X Lapsed, where uh, we got us kind of a doozy today. <laughs> uh, in putting together the, uh, the notes for this episode here, I was reminded that uh, our friend Jesse DeYoung had mentioned that he had tried getting through these Silver Age stories, but always kind of stops around issue 20 or 21. And, uh, yeah, we're at issue 21, and I can totally see why somebody might put this down for a little bit and uh, maybe not even come back to it. <laughs> these are, uh, this is going to be a doozy. Um, it is worth noting here that this is issue 21, and it's not the last issue of the volume, which, I mean, nowadays we... We really don't get more than 20 or 21 issues for an X-Men volume, do we? It's a, kind of a sad state of affairs, but uh, yeah, it is current year after all. Anyway, we got a lot to get to today, so let's get into the issue. This is X-Men number 21, June 1966, cover date. The story is called From Whence Comes Dominus, edited by Stan Lee, but credited first. Written by Roy Thomas, pencils Werner Roth as Jay Gavin. Inks, Dick Ayers. Letters, Artie Simic. Colors, uh, the bullpen, somebody, maybe. Uh, cover price, 12 cents American. Now, it has been a little while since we did an Essentials episode, but if you recall, we wrapped up with uh, the X-Men heading to Lucifer. Okay, Lucifer has reared his ugly head again, and, uh, well, that's exactly where we pick up here. We open with the X-Men nearing Lucifer's southwestern Mesa base, when suddenly... Their ship changes direction. Now, Angel sees a blinding shaft of light in front of them, which Xavier assumes to be some sort of a force field, which, well, maybe, kinda, sorta, yeah. Um, Upon closer inspection, we can see that it's actually emanating from... Outer space! Now, within the shaft are massive shapes streaking downward, as though they're being delivered from space to this mesa and the X-Men decide to back off to plan their next move. Meanwhile, we meet Mr. Mac and his posse, and they are your stereotypical goofballs from a nearby dude ranch. Now, they too see this beam of light, and so, you know, they do what they do. They grab their rifles, mount up, and trot over to see what's up. You see, Mr. Mac is worried that something like this might drive customers away from uh, staying at their dude ranch, which... I mean, it could also mean the end of the world, right? But uh, whatever, let's just worry about the dude ranch. I figure, if anything, it's going to help business at a dude ranch, just out of curiosity, you know? Anyway, it doesn't take long for the shaft of light to vanish, likely due to it having already done what it was supposed to do in, you know, making those deliveries. And Jean notices that there are wisps of smoke coming out of the top of the mesa. Xavier informs her that they're actually opalescent? Opalescent? however you say that word, opalescent gases, which he deduces are being used to conceal what's going on down below. So I guess we know which volume of the encyclopedia showed up at Rascally Roy's local grocery store this week, right? Opalescent gases. Now, as the proto-blackbird flies over the mesa, the gases erupt, fooshing upward, nearly destroying the X-Men's craft. Now, this seals the deal for the professor that this has got to be where Lucifer's hiding out. Um, You think? Right? Um, Okay. Okay, so we know where where Lucifer is, but how will our heroes get inside? Well, there's a nearby river that flows between the mesas and disappears into the underground. 
And the X-Men assume that this will lead them right to Lucifer's citadel. So they, they take the waters and they will get there. Now Xavier throws the jet onto, into autopilot and deploys a go-buggy, which lowers all six of our mutant heroes down to a plateau. Xavier informs the team that they'll have to infiltrate without him, but not to worry, he'll still be monitoring them all mentally. And you know, he'll probably step in at the very last minute in order to hog all the glory anyway, like he tends to do. Warren, bless his heart, is still worried about clearing the X-Men's good name, which is something I almost forgot about. If you remember, Blob and Eunice posed as X-Creeps last issue and robbed a couple of banks. And so uh, the X-Men are kind of personas non gratis, if however you say that, uh, in the eyes of the public. Okay, so the X-Men make their way downward toward the rushing river, all using their uncanny powers to do so. Warren flies, Beast bounces, Kid Cool uses an ice slide, Gene TKs, and, uh, well, Scott just slowly climbs down the crags, uh, so can't win them all. Anyway, Mr. Mac and his men catch sight of the bizarre assemblage, and, uh, knowing that they are, you know, currently wanted folk on the East Coast, they decide they might just try and nab them and take whatever reward monies might be coming their way. And so, they open fire. So, I guess we can assume that the X-Men are wanted dead or alive? I, I don't know. Uh, the X-Men wind up making short work of them all the same, and, I mean, that should come as no surprise. Uh, Gene lowers the brim on Mr. Mac's hat down over his eyes. Cyclops blasts a bunch of nearby rocks to bits as to pepper his men with pebbles. Then the posse, horses and all, fall into that nearby river. All but Mr. Mac, who finds himself encased in a giant ice cube and sent on his merry way. Now, I gotta wonder, I mean, the posse fell into the river, is it still rushing toward Lucifer Citadel? Are they gonna wind up in Lucifer's place? I, I don't know. Anyway, with all that ridiculousness out of the way, it's finally time for the X-Men to make their approach to Lucifer Citadel. And so, they load onto an ice raft and head for the river. They flow into a cave, but then a monstrous whirlpool appears from nowhere and yanks them all downwards. Meanwhile, back on the plateau, Professor X loses telepathic contact with his charges. And you see, this is why you never leave home without the mento helmet. I mean, how, how much trouble can it be to bring a damn helmet with you? Anyway, just then, he's apprehended by a pair of large green robots. He attempts to nail them with mental blasts, but unlike when he did the same thing to the Sentinels, it doesn't work. The big bots introduce themselves as agents of Dominus. Then they grab him and fly him into the Hollow Mesa. Now, Xavier is equal parts frightened and excited. I mean, at least he'll be in position to steal all the glory for himself at the end of the issue now, right? Uh, the Professor is then deposited right before Lucifer, and it's a full-page spread, and as with all of Werner Roth's full-pagers at this point, uh, it's not all that spectacular. Uh, we can see whatever machine Lucifer's working with, and it's quite the mishigas here. Uh, we got monitors, stairways, dials, levers... It's like as though Jack Kirby kind of just threw up on the page. Um, anyway, Lucy explains that this machine is known as Dominus, and with it, he will enslave the entire world. Meanwhile, we rejoin the X-Men. First, Warren is able to fly out of the grasp of the Whirlpool, but then he realizes that he should probably head down anyway to try to help his team out. Once down below, he finds Cyclops holding a swooned Marvel Girl trying to escape the rushing underground waters. Warren gives them both a hand, lifting them out of harm's way. But just then, the trio find themselves encased in, say it with me, a glass box. Where do all these villains get their glass boxes? 
I feel like the X-Men have been put in glass boxes like four times at this point. Naturally, all three of these X-Men are powerless against it, so they're stuck. Elsewhere, we catch up with the Beast, who, while attempting to make his way to dry land, is nabbed by a pair of big green robots. Just then, Bobby arrives on an ice surfboard to try and save the day. And that reminds me, did I ever tell you how I used a uh, Silver Surfer action figure as my Iceman back when I was a kid? You know, when the X-Men figures came out, Series 2 had this really cool Iceman figure, and people of my vintage probably know the figure. It's, you know, you can kind of see through it. It's kind of opaque. It's, it's really, really cool. And it came with an ice slide, and it was just the coolest thing, but I couldn't find the damn thing anywhere. And our guy at the comic shop told us that uh, this figure was actually rare. So we probably wouldn't be able to find it anywhere, and if he were to get one in the store, he'd probably mark it up in price, since, you know, it is rare. So after many months of not finding it and coveting it (laughs) very much, I decided to just buy a Silver Surfer figure. And he came with a surfboard, naturally, which I figured could be used as an ice slide. And, uh, you know, while he was silver and not, you know, sort of see-through, I figured it was close enough. And, of course, I remember finding the Iceman figure like a week after shelling out the five bucks on the Silver Surfer. So, Silver Surfer just sat in the box unused. Anyway, now Bobby cracks his surfboard over one of the bot's backs. Then Beast bounces off its belly, opening up the opportunity for them to escape. Unfortunately for them, they run face-first into a metal wall that dropped down right in front of them. And, uh, I think we could probably make an X-Men villain's bingo card at this point. You know, glass boxes, gimmick walls. And I figure if Warren slips and falls into a net before the end of the issue, we'll have the trifecta. Let's head back to Lucifer, who has watched all of this play out on one of his many, 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 many monitors. And Xavier, while he's still unable to get into Lucifer's head, he figures if he can keep him talking long enough, he might just be able to deduce a way to beat him. And so, he lets Lucifer drone on for several pages about his plan. You see, Lucifer's people created Dominus, the ultimate machine. Then, they created the big green robots to operate it. Now, this machine included a gigantic circumcised cannon that erupts from underground and produces rays that enslave the people of whatever planet they were currently on. Lucy giddily shows Xavier some footage of a planet that they'd already enslaved, and uh, we see some human-looking folk working in a mine, because that's what enslavement is all the time. Now, Xavier is shocked that this is Lucifer's plan, while at the same time, he says that he knew it would come to this when he first encountered the baddie a decade prior. So, uh, which is it? I, I don't know. Okay, let's head back to the box. Now, Cyclops and Jean try using their respective powers on the box, and of course it doesn't work, because it never works. I mean, they should know this. They've been locked in boxes several times to this point. Anyway, the green machines then drag Bobby and Hank into the room and are about to deposit them into the box as well. Uh, have, haven't have we read this one already? Oh, I feel like I was just smacked with a little bit of a deja vu. What happens next is, I mean, we've read this already. Cyclops goes to blast the bots just as soon as they open the box, and, uh, I mean... That's what happens. But first, Jean uses her telekinesis to flip the off switch on one of the 50 million nearby panels. Cyclops lets loose that blast right into the back of a bot, putting it down for good, or at least for now. It lets out a signal which triggers Lucifer's bot brigade into attention, and Lucifer orders the bots to recapture the X-Men. But by now, they've managed to escape into the Dominus machine, and uh, the Dominus machine, if you remember is a machine full of stairways and hallways and whatnot. It's basically a wall-mounted maze. It looks like it could be 
like a uh, like a kids game show, like where they run around a set wearing like a Velcro vest and they put them put things on themselves like prizes to to you know take home with them. It's it's very much like that. Anyway, so here is where this already strange and uneven story becomes somehow even more so. So we got the X-Men, and they're in the machine, right? Now, you might be thinking, you're in the machine, why not just wreck the thing, right? Tear the thing up, save the world, everything's great. Well, Professor X has ordered them not to, which, if we stop and think about it, seems to always be his advice in these sort of situations. And I'm pretty sure this is just so he can swoop in and save the day. But, uh, you know, in any event, orders is orders. Okay, so the professor says no. But Warren wonders if this is Lucifer somehow mentally manipulating the professor to say this. Now, Xavier, it's worth mentioning, looks to be catatonic at this point. But, I mean, he, he always kind of looks like that. So Warren, he, he's all about tearing this machine to bits, you know, assuming that this isn't really Xavier's thoughts. However, Xavier's second-in-command, the field leader of the X-Men, Cyclops, won't allow him to defy their leader. And so, we get a couple of pages of the X-Men arguing their next move. Now, Gene telekinesis' Lucifer's cape over his head as though they were about to have a hockey fight, so he won't be able to contact his green machines? I guess? I mean, I don't know that he needs to, like, see to do that. I, I don't know. Then, Warren, he's tired of arguing. He's like, screw this and he swoops over to begin tearing up the machine. At which point, Cyclops lets loose an optic blast, nailing Angel right between his wings. Now Iceman worries that Sykes gone bad, and so he hurls a watermelon-sized ice block at him, which is deflected by telekinesis, so we know whose side Gene is on. Now it looks like our opposing teams of X-Men are Scott and Gene versus Bobby, Hank, and Warren. Now, Scott comments that he only dazed Warren with that blast, so he should quit being a wuss, and he'll be fine in a few minutes. Beast begins to lecture the group on what they ought to do. He's certain that Lucifer is manufacturing all of this, and it would be in everybody's best interest to just destroy the damn machine. He is cut off, however, by the arrival of a green machine. And over the course of the next page or so, the X-Men handily defeat all of the robots. I wonder if Roy's realizing he's running out of pages. I don't know. Just then, the Supreme One calls in to FaceTime on Lucifer's giant monitor, one of his many monitors. Uh, the Supreme One is not pleased by Lucifer's failure and sucks him back to wherever the hell they came from in order to punish him. As it's happening, Lucifer pleads with the X-Men to save him, but they don't. So, as the dust settles, uh, well, just how in the hell did this all wind up ending so neatly? Huh, well, if you were a betting individual and you were to guess that Professor X had something to do with it... Well, then you win the pony. You see, while the X-Men were arguing, and while Lucifer was posturing, Xavier managed to pierce the baddie's mental screen and caused him to command the green machines recklessly. So our heroes really didn't do anything all that spectacular. It was all Xavier's doing. So, same as it ever was. Now we wrap up with the X-Men returning to the proto-Blackbird and a blurb warning us that next issue will feature Count Nefaria. So, yeah, um... Hmm, this, this was a tough read. <laughs> I, I am not going to lie to you. It was very uneven. I feel like um, like we spent way too much time at certain things and we glossed over other bits that might be a little bit more important to the you know overall story and the presentation here. Like, I don't know why we needed so many pages with Mr. Mac, other than just to remind us again that the X-Men are feared and hated. I, it, it just seemed like such a waste. 
And on top of that, it feels like maybe Roy's a little uh, trepidatious about like going off formula for the X-Men book here, because this is you know, same as it ever was, right? The X-Men do something, they're, they're, they're unsuccessful, they get locked in a box, then Professor X at the last minute comes in and saves the day. In fairness to Roy, this is, you know, just his first two-part story. So maybe he's, uh, and maybe he's, you know, easing himself into it here, not wanting to deviate from uh, what came before all that much. But it feels a little too been there, done that, and doesn't really leave us feeling satisfied. I mean, for each scene here, we could have cobbled this thing together from stuff that we've already seen in the past, you know, dozen or so issues. Uh, the only thing that was missing was Professor X sending the team on a vacation. You know, which he does quite often So yeah, I, I don't really have a whole lot more to say about this that I haven't already said I, I didn't really care for it And I doubt I will ever subject myself to it again But I guess that's uh, kind of the, for lack of a better term, the magic of the essential X-Lapsed I'm reading these things so you don't necessarily have to So that's kind of all I have to say about this story And uh, while the story is over, the issue's not We do have back matter to get to And this is some of the... Uh, I think in this case it'll definitely be more fun in the story, but let's get into it here. We're going to start with the letters page, and we're going to start with John in Ohio. Now, John didn't initially enjoy Warner Roth on pencils, but now considers him superb. And if I'm being honest, I kind of had the opposite reaction. I thought Warner Roth was kind of a breath of fresh air after so many issues of Kirby, especially as Kirby was, I don't want to say phoning it in, but maybe just overworked around the time of like issue 11 or so. You know, it was, uh, it was kind of a sketchy issue. So when Werner Roth came in, it felt to me like a huge improvement. And now as we're getting used to him, it's I'm starting to miss Jack a little bit. So it's a, kind of an opposite reaction here from our, uh, our buddy John. Now, speaking of the art here, John especially liked the Magneto reveal at the end of issue 17, which I definitely disagree with. I thought that was a uh, very ugly page. Now, John also includes a clipping from the Cleveland Press newspaper written by Don Thompson, which talks up Marvel quite a bit. Now, Don Thompson might be a name familiar to some of you. He would go on to be the editor of the Comics Buyer's Guide in 1983. He and his wife Maggie already had a column in the Buyer's Guide for Comics Fandom, as it was called before Krauss Publications bought it, and they called it Beautiful Balloons, and that ran from 1972. Now, Don would pass away in 1994. Maggie would continue with CBG from there. Now, Stan replies to John that hundreds of Marvel maniacs had sent him Don's article. And Stan includes some quotes for us. Quote, The Marvel style is a fast-moving, dialogue-filled blend of slang and sophistication, which has won them a new group of readers, college students, and even some professors who relish the humor and the problems of Lee's super characters. And that certainly is something we could spend a lot of time talking about, how, uh, you know, the Marvel Age of Comics changed comics uh, from, you know, kiddie fair to uh, something that adolescents and even grown-ups could get into here. Probably the reason why so many of us are, you know, in the hobby right now uh, is because of, I don't know if sophistication is the right, I guess it would be the right word, because it is a little bit more mature than just... Uh, you know, Superman punching a lizard man. You know, these are characters with problems. These are flawed characters, the, the imperfects that, uh, that, you know, populate the Marvel Universe. It's certainly something we can spend a lot of time discussing, and I'm sure we will as we work our way through this era. But the next uh, message comes from Gordon in Georgia. 
and he uses a lot of X-words to explain Jay Gavin's extraordinary, excellent pencils. And, uh, Gordon, on that we dis-X-gree. Um, now he calls Stan out on misspelling his name in a letter column in the pages of Journey into Mystery number 123. And Stan says he's extremely sorry, and a bit annoyed that Gordy didn't blow sunshine up his skirt about the story, and only, you know, praised Jay Gavin. Next up, Sid in Michigan who, it's worth noting, is writing in on Merry Marvel Marching Society stationery, and he wants to know who drew the characters on it. He loves fantasy masterpieces, and he reads all of the Marvel books and thinks that this ought to earn him a no prize. I don't think that's how it works, Sid. You know, just reading the books isn't enough. Um, Now, Stan tells him not to worry about the no prize, and he should be more concerned with how much money he spends on comics every month. And that sounds a little counterproductive and almost... uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's almost like he's mocking poor Sid there Stan then reveals that he's pretty sure that Jolly Jack drew all of, or at least most of, the characters on the MMMS stationery Next up, Bill in DC Now he fell in love with Marvel over the summer of 63, which is uh, my favorite Brian Adams song No, um, now He's totally deaf, which I'm not sure why that's relevant here uh, He did go to the world's only college for the deaf, which is Gal. Galladay College in Washington, D.C.? I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Uh, He assures Stan that many people with his same handicap love Marvel Comics. Now, Bill loves seeing the new mag show up at the drugstore in the newsstand and is beyond bummed out when he finds out that he missed an issue. Stan thanks Bill for reading and also for informing him about Galladay College, which up to this point he'd never heard of, and neither had I. Uh, He wishes Bill the best and even gives him a free subscription to the X-Men so he doesn't have to ever worry about missing an issue again, which is a really, really cool move for Stan. Next, Guy in New York. Loved X-Men number 18. He enjoyed seeing a more serious side to Iceman and wonders how Magneto suddenly became so much more powerful. Guy was not keen on the next issue blurb, however, which promised the introduction of The Mimic. And, uh... What's that thing if you assume you, you do something with something, right? He, he just makes an assumption here about the Mimic. He assumes that the Mimic will be a master of disguise and says that this concept has a, it's kind of been there, done that sort of thing in Marvel. And he cites several characters here. Uh, the Skrulls in Fantastic Four number 2, the Chameleon in Spidey 1 and 15, Craven in Spidey 34, Red Skull in Sergeant Fury 25, Space Phantom in Avengers number 2, and the Masquerader in Rawhide Kid 49 and 50. And, uh... Yeah, I mean, what do we what do we always say about assuming? Hmm. Now Stan responds in Stan fashion by just congratulating Guy on his extensive Marvel knowledge, which I mean, that's that's a Stan answer for you. And uh, he doesn't call Guy out on being wrong, so that's a good thing too, I guess. Fred in Colorado, he enjoyed X Men number eighteen, and he says that there was a panel featuring the Professor that he thought was a bit corny, and it was the bit where Xavier concentrated the mental inhibitor gimmick off his head, and. Uh, When I looked at it, I just called it ugly. But I suppose it was corny, too. Now, Fred says that this made Xavier look like, quote, a gibbering idiot. And I would like to add to that. It made him look like an ugly gibbering idiot. All's not bad, though. Fred loves Marvel covers and the titles of most of their stories. Stan replies by saying he's happy that there's something that Fred likes about the books. He just wishes it were the stories. Wonk, wonk. Uh, Next up, Charles in Texas. Enjoyed X-Men 18 and didn't mind seeing Magneto back. And he said it was nice seeing him use his brains rather than just his powers. Lewis in Georgia. Now he thought X-Men number 17 was good, but not marvelous. 
You see, he judges a comic book by how much fighting is in it. And, and I'm guessing that Lewis isn't really keeping up with Marvel mags anymore, unless constant hero-on-hero fighting rocks his socks is really not a whole lot for him. Now, you see, X-Men 17 didn't have all that much in the way of fighting. Now, this, if you recall, was the issue that mostly consisted of Professor X loitering around the hospital, checking in on those costume kids that he claimed not to know or be associated with. Remember that one? Uh, Now, Lewis wants the blob back. Well, be careful what you wish for. Uh, He really enjoyed the Fantastic Four Galactus story, and he wants to know who'd win in a fight. The Hulk, Hercules, Spider-Man, or The Thing. Is this the first time we got this que- or a question like this? Like, who'd win in a fight? I mean, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of that uh, as we move forward here, but this might be the first time. And Stan replies that Irving Forbush would win that fight. Um, he doesn't even mention the lack of fighting in issue 17, uh, probably because Stan doesn't remember it. Personally, I'd rather just think that Stan is, uh, you know, purposely not, <laughs> not engaging and, and not, in, not interested in that criticism. Next up, Laura in Massachusetts. Now, Laura just knew Stan would bring Magneto back, and she wasn't happy to see him. She was happy that he was deep six after just the one story, though. She says the X-Men hit its creative peak with the Juggernaut and the Sentinel stories, and doesn't want to see the mag backpedal into Magneto in the Brotherhood days. And Stan tells Laura that, you know what, you're supposed to hate Magneto. He is a bad guy, after all. Next up, Ken in California has five things to say, and they're numbered. So I love these. I love letters that are numbered. Letters that are numbered. That's a weird sentence, isn't it? One, X-Men 17 had the second best cover he has ever, ever seen. His absolute favorite was Fantastic Four number 46. And Fantastic Four 46, by the way, features Black Bolt of the Inhumans front and center, so I suppose there is no accounting for taste. Two, X-Men number 17 had the best story he'd ever read. Wow. Okay. Uh, three. The first panel, the final panels of X-Men 17 were the most dramatic he'd ever seen. And that is, uh, if I'm remembering right, that's where Magneto was uh, revealed as being in the mansion. Four. Page four, panel two of X-Men 17 was the corniest he'd ever seen. And this one featured Professor X thinking to himself that Beast shouldn't remove his mask. I, 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 I maybe, maybe... Maybe these pages were numbered differently back in the day? I'm not sure why this panel stood out to Ken, but... Okay, I mean, so far we've got two of the corniest panels in that book. I don't know. Five. The November issue of the California Pelican was very interesting. Okay, now you might be thinking, just what in the hell is this all about? Well, I did a little bit of research. The California Pelican was a humor-oriented magazine published by the students of UC Berkeley. Now, Volume 72, Issue 2 of said magazine was called The Far Out Issue, and it featured some Marvel content, including a cover which featured Spider-Man and the Hulk. In it, there's a five-page article by Bob Weeder called, quote, A Critical Analysis of Contemporary Pop Art, and then in parentheses, or here's a whole bunch of stuff about comic books. It had a 30-cent price tag and a print run of only 7000 So if you've got a copy, consider yourself a true fake-ass comics historian. You can find them. I found some on eBay, but they were not available. So, I mean, they might pop up from time to time. And if if you want to take a look at that, I'm going to keep an eye out for it. If I do find it, I will will share all of it with uh, with everybody. Finally, he thanks Stan for the 12 great books a month. And Stan thanks Ken back and wonders if one of those 12 monthly mags is Millie the Model. Well, those are the letters. Let's head into the bullpen here. Now, we have uh, 
several bulletins. This is uh, written in a kind of a different way than usual. It's not like the, you know, in case you didn't know department. This is just a listing of uh, bullet-pointed bulletins. And we start with a hail and farewell to Steve Ditko. Now, Steve is leaving Marvel for, quote, personal reasons. And as such, Amazing Spider-Man number 38 and Strange Tales 146 will be his final stories. Stan claims he's going to miss him, and he wishes him every success in life. But comics got to keep coming out, so onward and upward. Jazzy John Romita will be taking over for Spidey, and Stan doesn't announce Ditko's replacement on Doctor Strange just yet. But, I mean, with the benefit of, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of years of a hindsight, I can tell you that it's going to be Bill Everett. Bulletin. People are still gobbling up Marvel's reprint mags, Marvel Collector's Item Classics, and Fantasy Masterpieces. Stan announces that Fantasy Masterpieces will begin featuring Captain America's Golden Age exploits, most of which I gotta assume are gonna be brand new to uh, the current crop of uh, Marvel fans. Bulletin. Stan mentions the Marvel mentions in the UC Berkeley Pelican, and he makes sure to do so because uh, the last time he had mentioned it, uh, he mistakenly attributed the mag to UCLA. So, whoops. Though, I mean, are there really any difference between California universities? I, I couldn't tell you. Bulletin. Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four will be appearing in Lancer Paperback's collector's albums. Now, Spider-Man's 50-cent paperback will hit in 1966, and uh, we got some quotes on the cover, Pussycats. He's hip, greatest of the new breed of superheroes with super problems, from the New York Herald Tribune. Quote, if Charlie Brown wore a skin-tight costume and fought crime, he would be Spider-Man from the Colgate Maroon. Now, these paperbacks are... Quite strange. Um, They're not collected editions the way we see them nowadays. These feature clipped comics panels and look to be rather unpleasant to read. Now, Spidey's album included material from Amazing Spider-Man 1, 13, and 16. And between the years of 66 and 67, Marvel would release six of these things. And since I'm not sure we're ever going to mention these things again, let's, uh, let's go through them. In addition to Spider-Man, we got the Fantastic Four, which included material from Fantastic Four 1, 6, and 11. Incredible Hulk, which included material from Incredible Hulk 3 and Tales to Astonish 61 through 63. Thor, who is called the most dramatic hero in the world, which I don't know why that makes me laugh so much. Uh, The Thor volume features uh, content from Journey into Mystery 97, 104, 114, and 115. The Return of the Fantastic Four with Submariner features Fantastic Four 33, 35, and Annual Number 2. And finally, Daredevil includes Daredevil Number 1, 3, and 17. Bulletin. We got the Fantastic Four introducing the Black Panther in issue 52. Spider-Man is going to guest star in Daredevil issues 16 and 17. And Giant Man will be back with the Avengers, now using the name Goliath. Bulletin. Marvel mini-books are being sold in vending machines. And uh, they are not kidding with the name. These books are the size of a postage stamp, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, These mini-books would be sent out to MMMS members and were also sold as cake decorations. I mean, there are pictures of these things online, and you can read them online, too. They're they're pretty crazy to look at. Uh, Six of these were made. Thankfully, no X-Men issue, because uh, being the completionist I am, I would probably need to track that one down, and I don't know that I'd be able to. Uh, The ones they included were The Amazing Spider-Man, The Mighty Thor, The Incredible Hulk, Captain America, Sergeant Nick Fury, and finally, Millie the Model. Now, the books were around uh, 50 teeny tiny pages each. And like I said, you could find them and read them online. They are quite a hoot. They are very, very silly. Bulletin. 
the MMMS has thousands of members, including, and stop me if you heard this one before, radio DJs. Hoorah! I mean, uh, they're really getting on the DJs, <laughs> being part of the marching society. Uh, finally, the wrap-up. Now here, Stan shares a letter that was written to him from a Mike in Massachusetts, and it addresses Stan's recent outbursts about uh, brand Ech comics. Now, uh, Mike lambastes Stan for resorting to name-calling and needling the competition. He feels as though readers are tired of being hammered over the head with Stan's propaganda. And uh, I kind of disagree. I I couldn't disagree more. I I think Stan's gotten a lot of credit in this era for, uh, as we talked about, the sophistication of comics. And, of course, sophistication is not a hard and fast statement. And uh, we all have the the prisms through which we view a statement like that. But um, I think Stan has brought comics into, I mean, he brought it into colleges. he's, He's advanced the age of a comic book reader keeping folks in the fandom for far longer than they would have been during the Golden Age and into the 50s. And when he sees, you know, the brand Ech brands trying to ape the Marvel style, well, he might feel like a little bit of a pro- proprietary ownership of, uh, you know, the Marvel method. I-, I could see him being a little bit annoyed, for sure. And it's always a gutsy move to address these sort of things in print. Uh, you know, and I think at the end of the day, Stan doesn't... He doesn't want to see companies go out of business. He wants to see the industry... Be the best it can be, you know? Now, Stan, he asks the rest of the readers if they truly feel this way, and he says if they do, well, he'll never mention the competition again. So I think we can use our mutant abilities of hindsight to know how that informal poll uh, turned out. But those be the bulletins. Let's head into the mighty Marvel checklist. Fantastic 452 features the Black Panther. Spider-Man 38 has Spidey battle a batty new villain. Avengers 29 as Power Man, the Black Widow, and the Swordsman. Daredevil 17, Daredevil vs. Spidey. Thor 129 featuring... Who else? Hercules. Uh, Strange Tales 146, Fury vs. Them, and Doctor Strange meets Eternity. Suspense 79, Iron Man faces disaster, and Captain America faces the Red Skull. Astonish 81, Submariner gone mad, and Hulk fights a bunch of people. Sergeant Fury 31, Captain Sawyer is back in action, so uh, I guess we can all rejoice. Fantasy Masterpieces number 3, which features the beginning of the Golden Age Captain America reprints. Marvel Tales number 3 features Spider-Man, Thor, Ant-Man, and Human Torch. Finally, Collector's Item Classics number 3 features the Fantastic Four, Hulk, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, and The Watcher. So uh, one of those things ain't quite like the other, huh? Well, that be the issue. Uh, before we get out of here, let's head into the mailbag here. We're going to start with a message from our friend Joe Crawford regarding the Fantastic Four Annual Number 3 episode. He says, I thoroughly enjoyed this episode, Chris. After this one, I wish you were covering every Silver Age book. Fantastic job. Until Franklin's a mutant again, make mine essential. And then in parentheses, uh, that could actually change, I guess, but you know what I mean. And yes, I certainly do. And I, I would not be surprised if Franklin does become a mutant again, and then demutanted, and then remutanted, and uh, so on and so on. But uh, thank you so much for your kind words about uh, that episode. And it's funny you mention covering uh, more Silver Age stuff here, because uh, where we sit right now, I'm not exactly sure what the next episode's going to be. Because... Uh, I wanted to make sure we finished the two-part Lucifer Dominus storyline before I made the decision. We might be going straight into the next issue of X-Men, 
or we might be doing a uh, little side trip through Strange Tales to introduce the mutant menace of Mentalo, who makes his debut in a three-part Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. story. And so I put that out there on a few of the uh, social media platforms if, uh, if Mentalo warranted. A, uh, you know, a deep dive, or a semi-deep dive, I suppose, just covering stories that he first appeared in. Considering that he's, uh, he's not really an X-Men character, but he is a mutant, and, I mean, that's kind of the mandate of the show, is that we deal with all the mutant stuff. And, uh, of course, in the current year, Mentalo is a cast member in the Sword book, and from some of the responses I got when I posed the question... Uh, this volume of Sword was when uh, some folks actually met Mentalo, and uh, they just assumed that he was, you know, an X-Men character going back to uh, the long ago. So we might cover that. We might just mention it. Uh, I've got both scripts written. <laughs> I have the script written for the next issue of X-Men, and I have the script written for the Strange Tales one, so we'll see. Though by now, if uh, you're listening to this episode, I've already made the decision, and I've probably already recorded <laughs> whichever one that is, but... uh I suppose we'll all find out uh, a couple of episodes from now uh, where we which direction we're headed in. But thanks again for your kind words. Uh, the Fantastic Four Annual was a very fun one to uh, take a look at, at least with an eye toward analysis. Um, just seeing what an important issue it was for the you know seminal Marvel Universe. It's one of those odd books that makes me nostalgic for an era that I never even lived through. Next up, we got Jeremiah, who did some essential catch-up. Jeremiah says, In the past week, I've driven to New Jersey and back for work. For the entire ride down and back, I listened to the Essential X Lapsed, episodes 7 through 22. You can say that I continue to be lapsed on my podcast listening. Uh, starting next week, I'll be back in the office three days a week and will be listening to podcasts for the commute. Anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to back-to-back-to-back episodes where you describe and analyze the earliest of X-Men adventures. I have no real intentions to go back and read these stories for myself, only because my reading pile is too large as it is. That's why I love the show so much. Through your show, I get a great understanding of the building blocks of the X-Men, and to a certain extent, the entire Marvel Universe. Well, that is awesome. Thank you so much for that, Jeremiah. This is, uh, like I said during the uh, the uh, synopsis or the review portion of this episode, whichever it was, I- I'm very confused. I'm happy to read things so uh, not everybody has to. You know, not that I'm you know necessarily taking a bullet or anything that serious, but uh, I do know time's a premium. You know, time is certainly a premium. I I know that as well as anybody. I've got a stack that is, uh, uh, it's not getting any smaller, my reading stack. It's it's only getting to the point where I'm afraid it's going to uh, topple over and crush me. And so if I can lighten anybody's load through these episodes, that is uh, something I am more than happy to do. Jeremiah continues. While the stories are silly and fun, for me, I get so much out of them just getting to know where the comics I started reading in the 80s all the way back through today come from. I'm particularly glad to hear how you now have access to the bullpen bulletins and letters pages because they add so much to the context of the time when these stories were created. And for uh, folks who are new to the Essentials episodes here, uh, Silly and Fun was like the descriptor for <laughs> like five or six issues in a row because, yeah, these are Silver Age stories. There isn't always so much to say about them other than, you know, they were silly stories and I had fun reading them. You know, there really isn't... It's not like a, a Jonathan Hickman book. It's not like a current year Hoxpox, uh, post Hoxpox title where, yeah, there are this symbolism and subtext and uh, stuff like that. Here, it's just uh, silly and fun. 
And I tell you what, I am so happy that I was able to find the bullpen bulletins and the letters pages. Uh, I gotta definitely thank uh, Ed and Pat for hooking me up with those. Uh, they, I, they do add so much. And while they add so much time to the preparation of these episodes... It's funny, when I started the Essentials run, I figured that these were going to be quick. Yeah, when I started X-Laps, I thought it was going to be quick. I thought they were going to be in-and-out episodes, 15, 20 minutes a pop, bada-bing, bada-boom, on to the next one. And, I mean, X-Laps usually comes in at anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes an episode, sometimes over an hour. And uh, the Essentials, I thought, were going to be even quicker because, I mean, how much can you talk about with a Silver Age comic, right? So I figured those would be 10, 15 minutes, and, I mean... We just crossed 40 minutes on this episode, and uh, we're not done yet, you know? Um, and it's funny, these scripts or the, you know, the notes that I take for the Essentials episodes, they have a lot of pages. <laughs> I think the one that I'm doing right now has uh, well over 20 pages, and it's just for one silly issue of X-Men. Whereas a current year, whereas like a current year x lap script goes like 10 to 12 pages, so... Yeah, we get a lot of a lot of meat here, and a lot of that does come from the back matter, which is just an absolute delight to be able to visit and also share. I, I think in a very crowded podcasting landscape that uh, that makes this show a little bit different than uh, than the others. So, very very happy to do it, and I feel like we're all learning so much about uh, these seminal years in the Silver Age and what the industry looked like and where it was headed. It's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun for sure. Now, Jeremiah continues, Now for some of the things I liked best. Like half of the fans, I was getting tired of the Magneto and the Brotherhood story. I'm glad they introduced new villains, and at least as of X-Men number 16, have not brought them back into the books just yet. Well, by now you know. (laughs) Magneto did come back for a very short stint. Only one issue, so Stan was able to uh, control himself there. Jeremiah continues, I thought the two-part Juggernaut story was very good. One of the best up to that point. I don't think I would have picked up on Cerebro pinging or not pinging on him if I were reading the book. I also like that it was a two-part story, but I understand why it would be criticized back in the day. Now, what uh, Jeremiah is referring to is the fact that Cerebro, you know, the mutant detection machine, pinged when the Juggernaut showed up. And the Juggernaut, of course, is not a mutant. And it's interesting visiting that in 2021 as opposed to back in, you know, 65, 66, because just like Jeremiah said, I probably wouldn't have uh, noticed anything weird about that back in the day, but... Knowing now what we know and all the hindsight we've got and how, you know, people have been called out for suggesting the Juggernaut was a mutant incorrectly. And in our current year, Krakoan era, I mean, one of Juggernaut's top character traits is the fact that he's a human. You know, he can't go to Krakoa because he's not a mutant. So it's easy for us to comment on that now. But back in the day, I'm I'm pretty sure I would have uh, missed it as well. And Jeremiah mentions it being a two-part story, which doesn't sound like a, like much nowadays, right? It sounds like just, it sounds like a short story compared to what we usually get, but uh, it was kind of a risk back in the 60s to uh, run a story across a couple of books because distribution was so weird and spotty back in the day. This is something that uh, Reggie and I talked about during our uh, direct market episodes of Weird Comics History, where like a newsstand might know what the most popular comics are for their area. And they'll say, okay, well, I need Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man, and then just send me whatever. You know, fill in the rest. So some months you might get X-Men, some months you might get uh, Sergeant Fury, some months you might get Green Lantern. You just don't know. All you know is the ones that you made sure to ask for because, I mean, these were newsstands. They don't necessarily care which comics they get, uh, and the kids probably didn't care all that much either so long as they were getting, you know, the big books that... uh, 
the newsstand made sure to order. So, yeah, if you found X-Men number, what was it, 12 and 13, I suppose, you found 12 and couldn't find 13, you were out of luck. You didn't know how the story ended. Or vice versa, if you were able to find 13 and not 12, you don't know how the story started. So it's a, it was a risk. It was a risk back in the day, and uh, certainly open for criticism, and we did see some of the letter hacks call Stan out for it. So definitely a, a risk. But, uh, you know, in hindsight, of course, we're looking at it with totally different eyes and in totally different uh, situations and uh, dynamics. So it's, it's kind of hard to put ourselves in those shoes. Jeremiah continues, I like the issue with the stranger and all the fantastical, nonsensical stuff that happened just because that I felt like that was Kirby's influence more than anything that Stan did. I also agree with you that the Sentinel story was pretty weak. Things felt shoehorned and contrived. It was missing some of the normal drama these stories typically have. And yeah, I mean, we go from the two-part Juggernaut story to a three-part Sentinel story, and it definitely didn't need... And it's weird to say about a Silver Age book, but it didn't need three parts, and it was just... It was very contrived, very shoehorned. And of course, we could probably lampshade that by saying, you know, hey, it's the Silver Age, but... That doesn't necessarily make it any more engaging or fun to read. Uh, Jeremiah continues, I think my favorite episode, though, was the one where you covered Fantastic Four Annual number three. Or was it number four, Stan? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've never seen this book, never read a reprint, but I'm well aware of its significance. In my mind, I equate it with Showcase number 100 as being an achievement in the Silver Age just by bringing all the characters together. And yes, I, I totally agree. That was uh, that was one of the more fun episodes that I've ever put together uh, for the uh, for the project. And it's funny when I think that I almost didn't do it. I, I figured I was just going to mention it. You know, oh, the X Men appeared in this Fantastic Four annual, and uh, I really wasn't even planning on reading it for the show, so I can make you know actual points about it. So I'm glad that I did, and I'm glad that uh, we did the episode on it because it was uh, it was a blast, and a lot of people seemed to enjoy it. So that's uh, that's super cool. Jeremiah continues, I'd finally like to mention that I enjoy the mailbag you still present, and I wanted to say that I still like being a part of this conversation and group that you facilitated between the show and the Facebook group. Well, I tell you what, I'm so happy that you're a part of the group, and it's interesting to, to, to compare the essentials to regular X-Lapsed in that there's some crossover between listenership, but there is definitely a group that only listens to the Silver Age stuff, and there's a group that doesn't listen to the Silver Age stuff. So it's interesting to get this this mix, you know, and uh, being able to have uh, discussions and conversations about both eras, sometimes mixing the eras, it's, it's been an absolute blast. So it's uh, a lot of fun, and it really means a lot to me that there are folks who are uh, in the group and willing to uh, to discuss this stuff. Jeremiah closes out with, I think that's enough of my going on and on. Keep up the great work. But he does include a P.S., I have bought and read X-Men Volume 6, 1 and 2, and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the regular X-Lab show. One of these days, I will get caught up on the Dawn of X trades and podcasts. Well, thank you so much, Jeremiah. This was a, such a cool message to get. Um, I couldn't imagine listening to that many episodes of, of my voice on a trip across a, a few states. That's a... Uh, Really, really cool, and it means it means so much to me. So thank you. And I do look forward to hearing your thoughts on uh, the brand new Volume 6 of X-Men here, because it's, uh, so far, a pretty fun read. It's um, 
a little bit different from Volume 5, but has enough similarities with it that it still feels part of the same era. You know, it feels like an evolution of the era a bit. So I'm definitely looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that. But thank you so much for writing in and sharing your thoughts. Uh, That's going to do it for our mailbag. If anybody out there would like to be part of the mailbag or just get a hold of me for any old reason, feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can leave a message at the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can visit chrisisoninfinitearths.com for blog posts and show notes, and hopefully there'll be a redesign sometime soon. It might, I might be moving things from Blogspot to WordPress. A lot of things that give me agita, you know, because I am terrified that I'm going to lose all my stuff. But uh, we're, we're going to take baby steps toward making that site look a little bit less... Awful, you know, <laughs> a little bit easier to navigate. Uh, you could also join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all the Chris and Reggie radio archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And, of course, that's available everywhere the Internet aggregates noise. But that's going to do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.